Psalm chapter 2 is where we are going to be today looking at God's Word. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one on the back of the pew in front of you. Psalm chapter 2, let's pray. Father, we long for the day when we will hear those wedding bells ring, if you will. We long for the marriage supper of the Lamb, where all your people, so many who are very un-American, people who have different skin color, people who dress differently from us, you will gather every person that you have chosen in your infinite wisdom and sovereignty. You will gather your people around your throne from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue. And we Americans here will be a very small minority among them. And we long for that day, God, when worship will be very multicultural and very multi-ethnic. And we long for that day because every person will have their gaze fixed upon you. So we ask you today around the world to keep drawing your people from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue to your throne by the power of the Spirit as the gospel message is proclaimed. And may you get great glory through your work as your kingdom comes. May your kingdom come now even as we look at your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm an artist, therefore my favorite class in school growing up, and especially my senior year, was art. In fact, during my senior year, I had art class twice. I had two art classes. I was teacher's aide in my second art class of my senior year. I was teacher's aide for Mrs. Tyler. Mrs. Tyler basically adored me. And though I was supposed to be teacher's aide, it was because I was teacher's pet that I was teacher's aide. So I don't know that I aided her much, um, but that's kind of how it is when you're teacher's pet and you're the teacher's aide. So basically, for one of those hours, I just goofed off and got to do what I wanted to do. I was also in a class during my senior year where my friend Travis and I were the sound technicians for our singing group, the Diamond Reflection. So basically, Travis and I sat in this room during third period while the teacher and all those who were singers were in another room, and we basically goofed off. We played guitar and listened to music. And once a semester, we actually had to get out the sound system from this large case and set it up and test everything. And that was basically it. It was an easy A, thanks to Mr. Hightower. I guess the whole supply and demand for sound technicians in a small redneck town of Oklahoma worked in our favor. Art was my favorite subject, and then this music class. But now, it's history. Psalm 2 changed all of that for me. You see, Psalm 2 has a way of changing what your favorite subject in school is. Psalm 2 has a way of redirecting everything in your life to give you a kind of perspective, no pun intended, that art class can't. Psalm 2 has a way of harmonizing everything, no pun intended, in a way that music class can't. And I hope that after this sermon today, 
history will be your favorite subject. But that won't happen unless we look at Psalm 2. So let's get ready to do that. Make sure you have your Bibles open to Psalm 2. But first, here's our big idea. Let Yahweh's reign reign in your wondering, stressed out, worried, sick, upset, and angry heart. Why do I say Yahweh? Because you'll see in verse 2, the word Lord there is in all capital letters. And this happens when the English translators let you know that the all capital letters is the Hebrew name Yahweh, God's covenant name. When he told Moses, I am, that's Yahweh. So when you see that and you hear me say Yahweh, we're talking about the Lord. Let Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, The triune God, Father, Son, Spirit. Let Yahweh's reign, reign in and capture once again your wandering and drifting, stressed out, worried, sick, upset, and angry heart. In Psalm 1, we saw last week and the week before that it matters where you are moving to in the afterlife. Psalm 2 will teach us that it matters if you know where history is moving as well. God's sovereign plan will be accomplished no matter what we see in this world. History is His story. And even though wicked men plot and scheme and they seem like they are in control, they are not in control. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, reigns. And he will reign on this world's parade one day. So let that truth reign in and capture once again your wandering, stressed out, worried, sick, upset, angry, and fretful heart. Because that's what was happening when Psalm 2 was written. Psalm 2 is written to remind the people of God that Jesus is in control. And don't freak out. Psalm 2 is structured so that we have several speakers speaking. In verses 1 through 3, the nations, we will see them speak out against Yahweh. In verses 4 through 6, Yahweh in turn will speak to the nations. In verses 7 through 9, the Messiah, the anointed one, Mashiach in Hebrew speaks what Yahweh has spoken to him. And then in verses 10 through 12, we will see the psalmist speaking to the nations, including Israel. So let's look at verses 1 through 3, where we will see the nations speaking out against the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord once again. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord And against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The first thing that you see right out of the gate is that the psalmist is flabbergasted. He can't seem to get his head around the fact that the nations and the leaders of this world plan and plot in vain. He is perplexed. Why these finite beings scramble to make all sorts of plans that will never come to fruition. He just doesn't get it. And here's what's perplexing him. The nations of the world and the kings of the earth during his time were plotting and planning to take down God's people. 
They would come together and have their version of the United Nations. They would have their meetings, and the agenda was always the same. What are we going to do with Israel and her God? What are we going to do with Israel and her God, Yahweh? And that was basically the only agenda item that they ever had. One agenda. Get rid of Israel, and we get rid of her God, Yahweh. And how they would do that is what every United Nations meeting was about back in the ancient Near East. Verse 1 says that the nations rage and plot. Interestingly here, the word plot is the Hebrew word Hagah, which we saw last week in Psalm 1. This is the word for meditate. When it says the psalmist delights in and meditates upon the law of God... It involves vocalizing, muttering, or murmuring under your breath. It means that you, you vocalize with your mouth what your mind is preoccupied with. It means that what is in your mind comes out through your mouth. And this is all that the nations and the leaders of this world do. They meditate. They think about and talk about how they can get rid of the people of God. They constantly think about and talk about how they can get rid of God and his people. They counsel together and talk behind closed doors and pass legislation and investigate and target particular faith-based groups. And they try to intimidate. And they still do it today. Oh, you thought I was describing what happens today, didn't you? I was talking about the cultural context for Psalm 2 when I said that they constantly think about and talk about how they can get rid of God and his people. I was talking about the cultural context of Psalm 2 when I said that they counsel together and talk behind closed doors and pass legislation and investigate and target particular faith-based groups and try to intimidate. They were doing this in the psalmist's day. And yes... They are still doing this today. Why? Verses 1 through 3 tells us, so let's read it again. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They do all of this futile plotting and planning because they don't have the same view of God's law that the psalmist had in Psalm 1. He delights in Yahweh's law. He meditates on it day and night. But the leaders of this world see God's law. They see God's word as burdensome and binding. They view God's ways as too restrictive and too narrow-minded. And that's why verse 3 says they want to break free from what they see as chains. I love the way the Net Bible, the New English translation, translates verse 3. When it says, they say, let's tear off the shackles they've put on us. Let's free ourselves from their ropes. They don't want to be shackled with a worldview that they despise and hate. They speak out against Yahweh and his anointed king. They fight and they want to be set free. They don't want the Lord as their king. 
This is what the rulers of this world have always done. Did you know that in Acts 4, after Peter and John were arrested and then released from prison, the early church turned to Psalm 2 to find comfort and to remind themselves that being hated by this world is part and parcel of what it means to follow Jesus. So keep your finger in Psalm 2, turn over to Acts chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 23 through 30, where we'll, we will see God's plan is coming about in this world. But if you're a part of the people of God, you've got to understand that this world will hate your guts precisely because you have linked yourself up with the sovereign God. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 30. And when they, Peter and John, were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Acts chapter 4 is reminding us that the world has always hated God and always hated his people. They hated Jesus, and Jesus said in John 15, hey, if they hate me, they're going to hate you because you're linked up with me. In other words, it will cost you big time to follow Jesus. You will be hated. You may be thrown in prison. You may be martyred. You might just get your head chopped off for following Jesus. So listen to me, especially you kids and teenagers. People will hate your guts in this world because you follow Jesus, because you are a Christian. People will hate your guts, but you have to love them to death. And you might have to give your life for the gospel and be a martyr. That's the reality. I'm sorry if no one told you that when they shared the gospel with you. But it might be wise to start inserting that into our gospel presentations. God loves you. He'll forgive you. He'll adopt you into his family. And you might get your head chopped off for believing it. And that's why we need to remind ourselves, just like the early church in Acts chapter 4, to let Yahweh's reign reign in your wandering, stressed out, worried, sick, upset, and angry heart. The world governments and its leaders will hate the people of God, but there is no need to fear. We need to only reign in our 
hearts with the truth that our God reigns. One way to reign in your heart is to see how God responds to the futile plans that this world and its leaders have. So look at verses 4 through 6 where we see Yahweh speaking to the nations. How does he respond to the nations of this world that don't like him, that don't like his people, and don't like his word? Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. How does Yahweh respond to rebellious nations? He laughs. <laughs> Look at your plans. Look what you're trying to do in this world. Look how you're trying to take down my people. (laughs) It's laughable to God. You see, it doesn't matter what this world does. There is no need to fear because of Psalm 2. God is not faced. He is unimpressed with any person or nation that wants to get into the ring and try to take him on. How does Yahweh respond to terrorists with bombs strapped to their backs? How does Yahweh respond to politicians who want to kill unborn babies? How does Yahweh respond to politicians and people who want to redefine marriage? How does Yahweh respond to world leaders who flex their muscles and threaten nuclear attacks? He laughs. He mocks them. (laughs) Look what you're trying to do. It's futile. It's pointless because I am the Lord. You've got to have this picture in your mind of your God. You've got to see how your God looks when some nation sticks out their puffed up chest and they think they are the big dog because they have nuclear weapons. It moves your God to laughter. For some nation to think that they could stop God's plan from happening is hilarious to God. And it's that image of your God sitting on his throne laughing that should reign in your heart. When this nation or any nation does something that appears on the surface to be worth getting upset over. It's that image of your God sitting on his throne laughing hysterically. That image should reign in your heart. When this nation or any nation in the world does something that appears on the surface to be worth getting upset over. You have to contrast the Let us, in verse 3, where the nations speak, with the as for me, in verse 6, where Yahweh speaks. Verse 6, it's emphatic in the Hebrew. It's laughable. They, plural, versus I, singular. One versus how many thousands, and Yahweh still wins. Now notice too in verse 6 it says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Two observations here. The king mentioned here 
along with the anointed of verse 2 and then son in verse 12, are the kings that started with David and after. So in its original context, Psalm 2 is talking about David and then Solomon and then the kings that would come after them. God is giving them a promise and saying, I will bless you, I will watch over you, your enemies will not harm you if you love me and serve me with all of your heart. So in the original context, it's talking about David and the Davidic covenant that Yahweh made with David and any of his descendants who would follow him. But we know now that ultimately it's pointing to Jesus. Notice that the ESV has capitalized each of these words, anointed, son, and king. Why would they do that? They do that because in their original context, king, anointed, and son refer to David and the Davidic kings, but ultimately they're pointing to the King David par excellence, the one that the Old Testament prophets prophesy saying, God will raise up King David. That's Jesus Christ. The anointed here, the Hebrew word for Messiah, Mashiach, and the word son here obviously are pointing to Jesus. Secondly, let's talk about the city. Where does Yahweh plant his weak, frail, human kings like David and Solomon and those who would come after him? Where does Yahweh plant these weak kings who will ultimately lead up to Jesus Christ? Where does he plant, though, his kingdom? Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, takes human kings and he plants them in Zion. What's so staggering about that? Well, we first see Zion mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 7, when David takes this stronghold away from the Jebusites. Yahweh takes these measly 11 acres of land, the 11 acres of Zion, and he plants his visible earthly kingdom there in David's day. And we know from Daniel 2.35 that one day it will become a great mountain that will fill the whole earth. Here's what's so amazing about our God. He sets up his visible earthly kingdom using frail human kings. And where does he put his visible earthly throne? In the backwoods of Podunk, Judah on some measly 11 acres of land. This is vintage Yahweh. But because Yahweh is behind it, it will succeed, even though on the surface it seems like it won't. Even though the visible kingdom of God starts off small in the backwoods of Judah, and even though it is seemingly insignificant with these weak human kings, it will survive because of Yahweh. God took a small tract of land in Israel, in the backwoods of Judah, and he set up his visible kingdom there. And though it seems weak, nothing can stop it you got to love a God who thinks like this. Perhaps archaeologists one day will dig up an old billboard on the outskirts of Podunk, Judah, in a suburb of Zion that says in Hebrew, Let Yahweh's reign reign in your wandering, stressed out, worried, sick, upset, and angry heart. Look at verses 7 through 9 with me now, where we have the Messiah Speaking what Yahweh spoke to him. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Beginning in verse 7, we have the anointed one, the king, 
the Messiah speaking. He tells us what Yahweh said to him about his reign as king. Obviously now these verses are speaking about King Jesus. And what does Yahweh say to his son? What does God the Father say to his son Jesus in this passage? Roughly he says, Jesus, you are my son. I have installed you as king. Your kingdom will cover the whole earth. Yes, we started in the backwoods of Judah with 11 acres, but your kingdom will be worldwide. All nations belong to you. How will we accomplish this? You shall break them with an iron rod or a war club and smash them like pottery. In other words, God the Father is saying to his son, I love you, son. And have a wonderful plan for your life. You will take a war club to your enemies. And some of you are just getting warmed up to Jesus. And you're thinking, hey pastor, I was just starting to like this king. He's an underdog. He comes from nothing. He he comes from the, the redneck backwoods of Podunk, Judah. And then he becomes king. I like that story. And you had to go ruin it all with this talk about nations getting beaten down by a war club and being smashed into pieces. I don't like that Jesus. I like my Jesus with nicely feathered hair and soft, silky hands that smell like flowery lotion. I'm sorry to offend you, but this is vintage Jesus. When he returns, he is not setting up a lemonade stand. When he returns, he is not going to be singing open arms by the rock group Journey. He is not giving everyone a trophy. He is coming back, but not to be welcomed by a world that loves him. He is coming back to nations and kingdoms that hate his guts. And he will impose his rule by force on rebellious people. He will say to them, as verse 5 says, he will come with wrath and fury because they have rebelled against his kingdom. This picture of Jesus swinging a war club must infect your politics. This image of Jesus returning, swinging a war club and smashing his enemies to pieces must infect your politics. This picture of Jesus reigning as king over his enemies must be what stirs your emotions when you watch the news, when you read the newspapers, when you forward those emails. Please stop forwarding those emails. When you make comments on the pictures and you like the pictures on Facebook that tear down our president. This image of Jesus reigning as king should be what captures your heart and stirs your emotions more than what you think is happening in our government. God loves Jesus and has a wonderful plan for his life. He will rule over his enemies and he will take a war club to them. But here's another reason to love God. He calls out to these kings to repent. Look at verses 10 through 12 where we have the psalmist speaking to these kings, but it's so rich 
with God's grace and so rich with his mercy. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is nothing but 100% pure, unadulterated gospel. Oh, sure, the psalmist is speaking in verse 10, but it's really Yahweh. It's Yahweh calling out to the kings of the nations to repent and to escape the wrath to come. This is vintage Yahweh. In mercy and in grace, reaching out to his enemies and offering amnesty through the gospel. You gotta love our God. Here we have the two core components of the gospel there's a judgment to escape and joy to experience. The judgment to escape, we see this in the call to bow before the Lord. If the kings of the earth are wise and heed the warning, they will avoid the king's anger and they will avoid his war club. And they can do this by bowing their knee and submitting to Yahweh, the sovereign Lord of the earth. So there is a judgment to escape. That must be part of our gospel message. Otherwise, it's not good news but there's also a joy to experience that must be a part of our gospel, or it will not be good news. We see this in the call to rejoice with trembling, and how blessed or happy are the people who take refuge in him. The Hebrew word here for blessed is the same word that we saw in Psalm 1. True happiness comes when you are rightly related to God. How do these kings and nations escape judgment and experience joy? The answer is in verse 12. Kiss the sun. In the ancient Near East, kissing the feet of a king was a sign of submission. When a king in the ancient Near East recorded their conquests and their victories, they would say, so-and-so king from such-and-such a place came and kissed my feet. It was a sign of submission, a sign of allegiance to that king. The nations in Psalm 2, just like many nations today, plot and scheme against God and against his people. And this is what they've been doing for a long, long time. So there's no need to get worked up when things go south in this world. There's no need to get worked up when things go south in this country. There's no need to be upset, stressed, and angry. You know where history is headed. So let me ask you a question this morning, and I want you to be honest. Are you more upset that America is changing and that it's being wronged and your rights are being violated as a citizen? Or are you more upset that people are rebelling against a good, gracious, merciful, holy, sovereign 
God? Are you more upset because of what's happening in America and our government and your health insurance and taxes and everything else? Or are you more upset and worked up that there are people living on this planet who are not rightly related and who are ignoring the gospel call that comes from a gracious, merciful, loving, patient, holy, sovereign God. I'm afraid more Christians in America are upset first because they are Americans and then, yeah, because I'm a Christian. If you're bothered by what is happening in America, then let Yahweh's reign reign in your wandering, stressed out, worried, sick, upset, and angry heart. And then pray for your leaders and this country. Pray that they would repent. That's the heart of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is just like 1 Peter 2 that says, honor the emperor, honor the king, honor the president. And you do what Jesus does in 1 Peter 2 when Peter says he kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Our judges and our leaders aren't going to do it right every time. But there is one who will and does. And 1 Peter 2 says keep entrusting him. He judges rightly. He judges justly. So there's some homework for some of you to camp out in 1 Peter 2 because it's all about the people of God suffering at the hands of wicked people in this world. And what does Peter say? Love the brotherhood. Be involved in church. Don't slander the church and be one of those Christians who has a relationship with Jesus and you don't go to church. And then he says, honor the king. Honor the emperor. Honor the president. And pray for him that by God's grace... He would be saved along with the other leaders of our nation. That's the call that has gone out through the land to all the kings of the nations. Kiss the sun. Submit. Be spared. Escape judgment. And experience joy. But lest you or I think that we get off the hook here because we don't wear crowns and we don't have royal gowns and and royal robes and we don't have access to the White House kitchen, we too must submit to Jesus. Do you want to experience joy in this life? Then kiss the sun. Submit to Jesus. Otherwise, you will submit when he shows up with a war club in his hand when he returns to deal with his enemies. You don't want to be on that side of history because that's where history is heading Jesus will return to destroy his enemies or he will throw them into everlasting, eternal hell, suffering anguish and torment forever because they rebelled against him. That's where history is heading for the enemies of God. Or you could experience everlasting joy and peace in his presence. Do you see now why I said that Psalm 2 made history my favorite subject. I know where history is heading and I know where I'll be. How about you? If you're a Christian, you have a lot of reasons today to bow and kiss the sun once again. Kiss him today 
because you'll never be on the end of his war club. Let's pray and prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Let's remember that we have escaped judgment and that we experience joy precisely because God took a war club to his son Jesus on the cross because of our sin and our rebellion. That's what this table and that's what these elements represent. That Jesus died to bring us to God. That he went to the cross and said, take your war club to me. Treat me, Father, like an enemy for their sin and give them my perfection and my perfect life. We eat this meal today as Christians, which is a foretaste of where history is headed. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Make sure you RSVP to that wedding. Let's pray.